You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Well, it's good to see you this evening. If you would, please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and we will read tonight beginning with verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's ask our Lord's blessing on this time. Father in heaven, thank you for another opportunity we have to be together and to sing your praises and to receive the edification the means of grace, the means of ministry that you've ordained for your people. We ask, Lord, your blessing upon this next hour of preaching. We pray that it would be in demonstration of the Spirit's working and power. Lord, would you tonight encourage your saints, correct us where we need it, guide us where we need it, protect us, Lord, through what you teach us, Accomplish every good thing that you've ordained for us tonight as a result of being here. And we're mindful that people will hear me who don't know your Son, and we ask, Lord, that you would save, even as we heard this morning, those whom you have brought to yourself, their testimony in the waters of baptism. Lord, would you continue to save in these days and bring many to faith in your Son. We love you. We thank you that we do. We thank you that your love preceded ours and explains ours and sustains ours. We give you praise that we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. By the grace of God, Peter has confessed the truth about Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And after Peter gives that great confession, Jesus announces something regarding Peter, the role that Peter will have in the ongoing formation of the people of God, the building of Christ's church. Not only a continuation of the saving work that God has been doing throughout the ages, but a new and unique phase that would soon be coming post crucifixion, post-resurrection, post-ascension, post-Pentecost, Peter and the other apostles, along with the prophets, will serve as the foundation 
with this work that Jesus is doing. And Jesus makes that plain as well. Jesus is the builder of the church. He's the owner of the church. I will build my church, which as we said this morning is a bold messianic claim. If it is His church, then He is the Messiah. If it is His church, then He is the Son of God. He is confirming Peter's confession by the very claims that come out of his mouth. I will build my church. And as we've already mentioned, he indicates how he's going to build it. He's going to build it by using ordinary but redeemed people who have received from God an understanding of who Jesus is. By the very confession that Peter gives, this is how the Lord Jesus will build His church. The gospel being proclaimed, being disseminated by means of ordinary but redeemed people. And the apostles are the authoritative and trained beginning stages of that work that Jesus is going to do. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So in that sense, Peter is a rock. In that sense, the apostles serve as a foundation as they will lead the way in the proclamation of the gospel. So this morning we saw the builder of the church and we learned something about the building of the church. Tonight we begin with the third glorious truth. I told you I wanted to share five with you. The third glorious truth about the gospel in the church. You see it in verse 18. It is the invincibility of the church. Or you could say the security of the church. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And then our Lord says this, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of Hades will not overpower the church. Hades is the New Testament, the Greek term used to refer to Sheol that you read about in the Old Testament. The gates of Sheol or the the gates of Hades refer to the entry place of the abode of the dead. A gate could function to protect. For example, if you live within a, a city, a city wall, a gate would serve to protect or a gate could serve to confine if, for example, you're living inside the walls of a prison. In this case, case, the gates of Hades would refer to the confinement of the dead outside the realm of the living. The gates of Sheol or Hades speaks of death. You see this in the Old Testament. For example, Hezekiah in Isaiah 38 talks about the gates of Sheol. And he's referring to the fact that he was on the doorsteps of, of death. A writing of Hezekiah, this is Isaiah 38, verse 9. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness, I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. What does he mean when he says, I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol? He means I'm apparently going to die. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. 
So the gates of Sheol were the gates of, of death. This is why in, in Job, for example, or in the Psalms, you'll read of the gates of death. Job 38, 17, God answering Job said this, Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Psalm 9, verse 13, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. Psalm 107, verse 13. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquity suffered affliction, they loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. And on it goes. So the, the gates of Sheol, New Testament, the gates of Hades, refer to the realm of the dead. So when Jesus says that the gates of Hades will not prevail against His church, what is He promising? He is promising that the church will not be overcome by the power of death. The church is going to live on. The church will not be extinguished. The church will not be snuffed out. The church will not be overcome, put out of business by the power of death. The church of Christ will continue. Jesus will go on working in it and through it until the end of the age. This is what He says in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. And what does He say? To the end of the age. To the end of the age, all authority belongs to me. I'm sending you out to make disciples and to baptize them and to teach them. What is this? This is the work of the church. And he says, I'm with you until the end of the age. If Christ is with the church in her work until the end of the age, how long will the church survive? How long will the church exist until the end of the age. The gates of Hades will not overpower the Lord's church. This means, of course, that Christ's death would not be the end of the church. It's not like He was building some sort of following, some sort of assembly, congregation during His life on earth, and then it was going to all go away when He died. No man took his life. He laid it down. He was crucified. And three days later, he was raised from the dead. Christ then appeared to over 500 of his disciples, gave them their marching orders, ascended into heaven, promised to come again. We're going to celebrate all that tonight in the ordinance of the Lord's table. We observe this until he comes. We remember him even tonight. Our Savior lives. His death was not the end of the church. In fact, His death and resurrection explains the life of the church. 
nor will the death of believers mean the end of the church. There have been devilish people, people led by Satan, informed by Satan, inspired by Satan, who have sought to extinguish the Lord's church throughout the ages. Christians have been rounded up and martyred. Some have been burned at the stake, and as one martyr said, when he was burned at the stake, all all they did was they lit a candle for the preaching of the gospel throughout his land. You can persecute the Lord's church, but you can't kill it. Because Christ lives, we live. No weapon formed against the church, not in, in the realm of men and not in the realm of devils, can possibly mean the end of the church. So just as Christ says He's the builder and the owner of the church, and just as He says that He's building His church and will build His church, He promises that His church will live on, that nothing will overcome it, that nothing will extinguish it. This is the invincibility of the church. This is the security of the church. And just as those two previous truths should preserve the church from error. We understand it's not our church, it's the Lord's church. We understand we don't build the church, the Lord builds the church. And there there are a myriad of errors that we're protected against when we believe those things and understand those things. In the same way, when you know that the church is invincible, that Christ has promised to build it and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, it protects the church from error. Probably if you're Like me, you've heard this at one time or another. Someone says something like this, if the church doesn't change with the times, if the church doesn't make this adjustment or that adjustment, it's going to cease to be relevant. It's going to go out of business. It's not going to have a place in the world anymore. It's not going to have any meaning. We have to change with the times. Right away you recognize they do not believe the Lord Jesus. When he says the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Do they not understand the invincibility of the church? Do they not understand the security of it? Do they not understand the sufficiency of the means that the Lord of the church ordained for the life of the church? We don't have to go looking around for how to function. Jesus has told us how to function. And so we aren't looking for new ways. We're looking to be faithful to the old ways. And we're not talking about fashions that do change with generations. We're talking about what is timeless, what is found in the Word of God. That never changes. And then there's a courage that we know when we understand that truth. How often has the church been found, not forever, but for a season compromising due to the intimidation faced from a hateful world, the threats perhaps of persecution or the threats of things that are very uncomfortable for the Lord's people, and they begin to acquiesce. They begin to grow weak in conviction due to fear. When you understand that the Lord has made you a part of what will live on forever that cannot be overcome, it imparts a courage to your soul. You might take my life, but you'll just deliver me right into the presence of Jesus. You might one day shut these doors but you won't shut the door on the Lord's people. 
You might take away tax-exempt status, and God's people will go right on giving. They're not giving for a tax break. They're giving to obey Jesus. And so there's a courage that's imparted to our souls when we understand Christ is the builder and He's building, and what He's building cannot be overcome, not even by the power of death, the invincibility of the church. Fourth glorious truth. Notice in verse 19, the authority of the church. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Again, Peter representing the apostolic body in this case, just the representative disciple. This is what the Lord is going to do with His church, with His people. The apostles is the foundation. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Christ is building His church, making use of people who are ordinary but redeemed. Therefore, they have been commissioned to be laborers in His field for the purpose of the formation of His community, His people. The question is, what has He given us for that work? What has Jesus given us, His redeemed servants, for this work? Well, He says to Peter that He's given him keys. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. There's a grammatical question when you come to verse 19. How should one translate future periphrastic perfects? And if that sounds thrilling to you, it is. And it's also way above my pay grade in terms of my ability. But I guess if I'm encouraged, it's an encouragement by the fact that it must also be above the pay grade of most scholars because there's no consensus. You read everything that has been written and you recognize that a lot of trees died in vain because they can't come to agreement. But the outcome of those discussions makes a difference in translation. You'll notice a difference, for example, between the ESV and the Legacy Standard Bible or even the New American Standard. The ESV has, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, translated as simple futures. But in the LSB it has, shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Something accomplished has continuing results. Something settled has continuing results. How should you translate these future paraphrastic perfects? D.A. Carson said this, before pursuing the grammatical question, it must be noted that regardless of whether verse 19 is translated as an English future perfect or as an English future, scholars have at times tried to bleed a bit too much theology out of their grammatical conclusion. I think that's right. And I think it's right for a lot of what you read in the New Testament. Really, what you have to pay attention to is context again and again and again. What do you see, not only in the immediate context, but then bring into the picture your knowledge of what the rest of the Word of God teaches about a subject, and it helps you understand sometimes what's going on grammatically. And then Carson goes on to give his understanding of what it, what it means, and I agree with him, and I, I want to give you this, even though it's a little bit lengthier, because I think it really is 
spot on and helpful. I'm going to ask you to have to listen carefully because it's going to be a little bit lengthy. He says, substantial help comes from comparing Jesus' denunciation of the teachers of the law in Luke eleven fifty two. There they are told that they have taken away the key to knowledge and have not only failed to enter the kingdom themselves, but have hindered those who are entering. Right? Take away the key of knowledge. You've taken away a key. You've not entered the kingdom, and you are hindering those who could enter the kingdom, who are entering the kingdom. Carson goes on to say this, Clearly then, by their approach to the Scriptures, Jesus says they are making it impossible for those who fall under the malignant influences of their teaching to accept the new revelation in Jesus and enter the kingdom. They take away the key to knowledge. In contrast, Peter, on confessing Jesus as Messiah, is told he has received this confession by the Father's revelation and will be given the keys of the kingdom. That is, by proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, which by revelation he is increasingly understanding. He will open the kingdom to many and shut it against many. The paraphrastic future perfects are then perfectly natural. Peter accomplishes this binding and loosing by proclaiming a gospel that has already been given and by making personal application on that basis. Whatever he binds or looses will have been bound or loosed as long as he adheres to that divinely disclosed gospel. I love this Next statement. He has no direct pipeline to heaven. Right? It's not like he's hearing from heaven and then unleashing it on earth so that what has been bound in heaven and loosed in heaven is now being bound and unleashed on earth. It's not like that. Still less do his decisions force heaven to comply. But he may be authoritative in binding and loosing because heaven has acted first. Those he ushers in or excludes have already been bound or loosed by God according to the gospel, according to the gospel already revealed and which Peter, by confessing Jesus as the Messiah, has most clearly grasped, close quote. Let me try to make this simpler because I know it's hard to listen to a long quote like that. What he's saying is this, we can make authoritative statements about who has entered the kingdom and who has not, who belongs to the kingdom and who does not, as long as our statements adhere to the truth that heaven has already revealed. God has spoken. We take what God has said. We proclaim it and we apply it. And as long as our proclamation of it and our application of it is faithful to what God has revealed, we are literally acting in the authority of heaven itself. Those are the keys. Now let me illustrate how important that is and how practical that is. Think about what this means for authority in the realm of evangelism. You know this, our world watches the church, listens to the church, watches the believer, listens to the believer. And what does the world say? Who are you to say who has a relationship with God and who doesn't? 
Who are you to say who God is or who he's not? Who are you to say what someone has to believe to have a relationship with God? I may not believe just like you believe, but I believe there's a God. Who's to say that what you believe about God is any more real or authoritative than what I believe about God? Who are you to say there's only one way to heaven? Who are you to say there's only one group of people who are going to be in heaven? Those who've trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. You say that God is one. He's eternally existed in three persons. You say that Jesus of Nazareth was and is His Son, God incarnate. You say He died as a substitute on a tree and was raised from the dead three days later. You say He's ascended into heaven and given this message that you preach. And you say that for someone to be saved, they must believe this message and trust in Him. Who are you to say that? What's our answer? We're not saying it. The King has said it. The kingdom has spoken. And all we're doing is making use of the keys of that kingdom. We are saying what the king has said. And as long as we agree with what he has said and adhere to what he has said, we say it with all the authority of heaven itself. This is what is meant when people talk about preaching being the word of God. That is, if you are faithfully expositing a text and preaching what the Bible says, then as you're hearing a sermon, you're being met by the Word of God. No one is saying that the preacher is inerrant. No one is saying that his words carry the same weight as inscripturated truth. But if he is faithful to what God has said, adhering to what God has said, then the message carries the authority of heaven. And so it is with gospel preaching. So it is with evangelism. As you go to the coffee shop or the schoolhouse or to your job and you're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and you say, if you believe this, you belong to the kingdom. If you reject this, you don't belong to the kingdom. You're opening the kingdom as it were, shutting the door as it were, and being faithful to the king as you do it because you're simply saying what the king has said. That's the authority of the church. Think about how this applies to authority in the realm of church membership. Every once in a while, you'll run into someone who'll have this sort of attitude. Who are you to tell me that I can't join your church? Why do I have to go through an interview? Why should I have to convince you or anybody else? Who are you to say that someone else can't join your church, my friend or my family member? Is the membership of the Lord's church regenerate or is it not? And if the New Testament teaches regenerate church membership, then you have a body of elders in conjunction with a congregation that must make a determination about who belongs and who doesn't. When you talk about membership in the church, someone has to examine those who want to join it. And with what kind of authority can you say to one, welcome, and to another, you're not there, you're not ready. You don't really belong. Given what we have heard and what we know, we don't believe that you are saved. Who has that kind of authority? It doesn't belong to us, but it does belong to the king, to the Lord of the church. And he's given us his word that we might be able to make those kinds of determinations. And as long as our judgments are faithful to adhere to or the application of what he has revealed, what heaven has revealed We're acting in the very authority of heaven itself. Think about how this applies to authority 
in the realm of church discipline. Now someone has joined the church and they've engaged in scandalous sin and they've been approached by fellow believers, one-on-one, two and more. It's been told of the church. Perhaps now it's at the stage where someone must be put out of the church. How dare you judge me? How dare you judge my actions and call them sinful? What kind of people are you who would remove people from your congregation just because they make choices you don't agree with? Who gives you that right? Who gives you that authority? The king does. And in fact, it is our respect for the king that requires us to agree with his standard. We have nowhere else to turn. We can't declare everybody into heaven. You have to preach the gospel and hold fast to the gospel. How many of us have been discouraged sitting in a funeral service, listening to a preacher declare someone to be in heaven that we knew didn't know Christ? You see, they don't have that authority. Our words must agree with the king. We don't have the authority just to allow anybody into the church. We don't have the authority to overlook scandalous sin. It is out of reverence for the king himself that the standards of his kingdom must be adhered to and applied with anyone who wants to make a claim on that kingdom. John MacArthur said it well. He said, Christians have such authority because they have the truth of God's authoritative word by which to judge. The source of the church's authority is not in itself any more than the source of the apostles' authority was in themselves or even in their office, exalted as it was. Christians can authoritatively declare what is acceptable to God or forbidden by Him because they have His Word. Christians do not determine what is right or wrong, forgiven or unforgiven, Rather, on the basis of God's own word, they recognize and proclaim what God has already determined to be right or wrong, forgiven or unforgiven. When they judge on the basis of God's word, they can be certain their judgment corresponds with the judgment of heaven. Close quote. Are you convinced of that? You convinced of that when you were going to come face to face with zealous hatred for the things the Bible teaches? Are you convinced that in those moments, you and I must be loyal to our king? Has homosexuality just suddenly become acceptable to God? Or is it still an abomination? Is marriage still between one man and one woman? Or does it include same-sex unions? I'm not talking about a legal definition according to the nation. I'm talking about a moral definition according to Scripture. Has that changed? Is right still right? Is wrong still wrong? Are we convinced that unless heaven and earth should pass away, God's Word's not going to change? And so therefore our perspectives can't change as long as we're adhering to what the King has revealed. Peter, here's what I'm going to give you to accomplish that work by which I'm going to build my church. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom so that what has been 
bound in heaven, you can bind on earth. And what has been loosed in heaven, you can loose on earth. I'm going to give you the same kind of revelation that has just come out of your mouth so that you can accomplish my work in my church in this world. I am so grateful, I know you are as well, that as we wait for Jesus to return, we have not been left without the light. We have the Spirit of God who is our teacher, but what is He teaching us? He's teaching us the Word that He's put in our hands. We are not left without a lamp for our feet and a light for our pathway. We know what is true. The Word of God is true. Which is why when Jesus prayed for the very sanctification of His people in John 17, what did He pray? Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. This is how we will be made more like Christ. So the builder of the church, the Lord Jesus, the building of the church through the proclamation of the gospel by means of ordinary people who are redeemed. The invincibility of the church, the gates of death, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The authority of the church, divine revelation. The keys of the kingdom, the key of knowledge. That which opens the door for those who truly enter the kingdom and shuts the door on those who would be pretenders and deceivers. This is the authority given to the church. The fifth glorious truth, the last one, verse 20. Then He warned the disciples that they should tell no one that He was the Christ. Is that not strange? To rejoice in Peter's declaration and to match it, meet it with a declaration of Peter's role and what Christ is going to do in the building of His church. Then He says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Why would you praise Peter's confession and then prohibit the proclamation of it? Well, I don't understand this to mean that Christ never talked about the fact that He was the Christ or that His men never talked about the fact that He was the Christ. You already see them doing this before this verse in Matthew's account. You'll see them do it again before Matthew's account is closed. I think what is in view here is the premature, wide dissemination of this knowledge. It's not you must make no mention of it. It is not yet time for the broad dissemination of it. But that still causes us to ask why. Why? William Hendrickson said the people would have interpreted the term Messiah, Christ, in the political sense. John 6.15 this might have fanned the flames of enthusiasm about him as a potential deliverer from the Roman yoke to such an extent that the opposition and envy roused by such widespread attention might have brought his public ministry to an untimely end. This must not happen. When an open announcement must finally be made to the Jewish religious authorities, Jesus himself will make it. Matthew 26, 63 and 64. Public acclaim must be postponed until after His death and resurrection. The very fact of this death followed by resurrection and ascension will shed light on the character of His Messiahship. I think Hendrickson's on to something. In other words, here's the fifth glorious truth. 
It has to do with the identity of the church. Who really belongs to the kingdom? Who really belongs to the church? And Jesus, at this point, doesn't want this broad dissemination of this truth because the atmosphere was so ripe with misunderstanding. Lest there be a misunderstanding of the character of His Messiahship, there are certain things that have to happen first. So that what our Lord was doing was wisely protecting the true identity of what He's building by the way that His identity was to be proclaimed. I wonder, are we careful to protect the identity of the church by the way that we proclaim Jesus, by the way that we represent Jesus? Do we sometimes leave the impression that our mission is political? Do we sometimes leave the impression that our mission is behavioral? What the world really needs is conservative politics. What the world really needs is a new morality. I mean, dear ones, listen, if tomorrow this nation swore off its commitment to homosexuality, same-sex unions, transgenderism, all the madness we see on display in our world right now, if tomorrow this nation swore it all off but did not turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior, do you recognize we're still lost? We're still lost. Do we leave the impression that our primary concern is about something temporal? Or are we clear in the way we declare Jesus that Christ builds His church by transformation? By salvation. Who belongs to the church? Only those who are regenerated. Only those who are new creations in Christ Jesus. Only those who can say, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was enslaved, but now I'm free. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was a God-hater, but now I'm a God-lover. I once lived for the things of this world, now I live for eternity. That's the Lord's church. Do we make that plain? Do we make that plain beginning in the work that takes place in our own homes? Yes, God has ordained that you train your children in all the ways of life, manners, correction, all the things that we do as parents that the Bible clearly speaks of. But are you making clear to your little ones that the way into the kingdom of heaven is not by being better boys and girls. That they have a sin problem. And Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do we make that clear? Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And on the heels of that confession, that divinely granted, graciously granted understanding of Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. Through that proclamation, by means of men just like you, Peter, in fact, you'll be on the ground floor of it, and the church that I build will never be overcome. 
and it will carry the authority of heaven itself. But proclaim it when it can be made clear what kind of assembly it is. It's an assembly made up of redeemed people. Blood-bought, sins forgiven, lives transformed people. Do you belong to that church? Is Jesus your King, your Lord, your Savior? And if He is, say Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You. Thank You for these verses that so remind us of what is our task and what isn't our task. What we have been called to do and what we could never do in a million years in our own strength and ability. And every one of us who belongs to you, we thank you that we do. That you have delivered us and made us your own. And given us the great joy and the great privilege of being a part of your working in this world until the end of the age. Strengthen us with the courage of the knowledge of the truth. Strengthen us with the courage of loyalty to our King. Strengthen us with the boldness that comes from knowing that what we have are not our own ideas, but the very keys of the kingdom itself, so that we simply declare and hold to what heaven has already revealed. Thank You, Lord, for such mercy and grace that we have known in Your Son. In Jesus' name we pray.